I'm going to title this message this morning, The Planting of the Lord. It's always a privilege to be here. Brett and Cynthia are among my dearest friends in the world that Kathy and I have. She grew up in this area. I've known Jim and Angie Critcher 36 years, Daryl and Jewel, decades, Clark's decades, Bennix's decades. It's, it's like coming home here. But I feel a, a unique sense of God's burden. A few days ago on Friday night, I had the privilege of being here to dedicate your building. And the Lord spoke to me, and I opened this passage in a little 15 minutes. And as I was leaving, the Lord dropped the other half on me. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to basically take the bulk of our text out of Isaiah chapter 61 this morning. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And I'm going to break it into three parts. And we'll allude to some other scriptures. I want to talk about three steps. Prepared, planted, purposed. God has a purpose beyond what you can conceptualize. You think you have a big dream, you've not seen his yet. He says, eye has not seen, ear is not heard, mind has not comprehended what God will do on behalf of those who love him. Open your heart, because this church is coming into an unusual season of not just growing in number, but growing in depth. God's reshaping this congregation. Watch what he does. In Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture, Jesus later, hundreds of years later, This is probably 750, somewhere at 700 BC. He'll read this in the synagogue of his hometown. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, not just economic poor, maritally poor, spiritually poor, mentally poor. He has sent me to take brokenhearted people whose hearts don't function normally anymore, can't trust, can't receive love, can't give it, and bind them up. He sent me to proclaim freedom for captives from anything, any addiction, any bondage. He sent me to release you out of darkness and set prisoners free and to proclaim the year of my favor and the day of vengeance on your enemies. I tell you today, there's an unusual favor. I was sitting next to the Clarks and Chris and I were talking I've been worshiping in this church for 22 years. But there was a drawing power in worship today. It was like I'd gotten a hold of kind of a glory, black hole in space. Something was pulling me. It's like God was pulling us into something. I don't want you to miss this season. He said that I'm going to comfort every one of you who mourn. I'm going to provide something for those who grieve in Zion. You're grieving today. What's he provide? A crown of beauty. Pastor, my life's gone to ashes. He has a crown of beauty for you. Pastor, I'm in mourning. He has an oil of joy. Pastor, I'm in despair. He's putting, he's helping you. He's fitting you for the garment of praise. But that is just the beginning of what God does. As glorious as that is, God's end game in your life is not just to heal your broken heart. It's not just to take away your despair or turn your ashes into something. No. 
That is preparing you for his real purpose. Now, here's the problem. If your purpose, if the ultimate purpose of your life is I'm coming to church to get a specific need met, you'll always have a need that needs met. Maybe you're in despair. Maybe someone you love is in an addiction. If you're praying for someone in an addiction today, raise your hand. Lord, I pray, I feel the real grace over addiction. Father, I pray the holy presence of God to fall on every addicted loved one, family member here. I pray you would set them free and draw them to yourself. Now, see, someone comes in, I need my marriage healed. Here's what I find. If the ultimate goal for you is your marriage healed, the moment you get it healed, you'll be done trying. And you'll be back in a few months with another problem in your marriage or somewhere else. Goes on to say, they're going to be called oaks of righteousness. They're going to be stable. They're going to be strong. They're going to be impervious to those things that destroy others. No matter what happens, they're going to be strong. Why? Because I've planted them. I've planted them. And I'm going to display my splendor. I tell you by the Holy Spirit, in the next six months, God's going to be pulling people out of their little planter boxes. See, many churches look, man, we're all together, we're all in unity. But in reality, the roots haven't fully grown together because they're all boxed in. By tradition, by a pain, by a concept, for some gender issue, ethnic issue, demographic issue. How many of you know, beloved, this is a little different church? We got Republicans and Democrats here. We probably got a few green folk in too. I mean, we got men, we got women, we got black Americans, Asian Americans, white Americans. It's a lot like heaven. Now it can look like that, but I heard the Holy Spirit say, in the next six months, I'm squeezing, I'm shaping, I'm pouring some tradition out. I'm plucking people out of pain. I'm readjusting the planter box of this church. So I can display to this city my splendor. It's Black History Month. It's the first Sunday. I want to comment. You think, wait a minute now. What's a 61-year-old, very handsome, red-headed white man who looks 18 know about Black History Month? Maybe a little bit. I want to talk to you about my, one of my number one African-American heroes. Her name was Irie Mae McLaurin. Now, to talk about her, i got to place her in context. I pastored in a city called Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Highway 95. I went there in 1984. And there was a legend in that city that nine months before Dr. King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech in D.C., that he spoke it in Rocky Mountain. How many of you know legends just grow in cities? But I had it, our church there was 70% African-American. And they kind of ebb and flow as God brought in different ethnic groups. And, but they had all, the older admins would say, Dr. King spoke his speech here first. I, I wanted to believe it. Last night I researched it. And two years ago, in the library, Brazel Library, across from the elementary school we bought, they found the recording of his speech, and it was true. And he had stood in a segregated high school, Brooker T. Washington High School, and talked about his dream for his children in this country. Now, when I arrived there in 1984, that dream hadn't yet been realized. It still hasn't. I was there. Jim Critcher was there, who grew up in eastern North Carolina. Chris Jordan was with us in our leadership team. 
He grew up in Oakland, California. He was African-American, he and his wife. I grew up in San Diego, California, and Rocky Mountain had never seen two California boys descend down on them like they did. <laughs> and God birthed in the heart of that church that somehow in the middle of that divided city would make a difference. Now, I didn't grow up typically. Um, our church was in a, a gang-infested area. No one wanted to live there. My, my dad worked three jobs to support us. Our church was African-American, Hispanic-American, white American. We only had one thing in common. We all had lots of problems, and we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> third, third of our church was drug addicts and alcoholics. We had drug enforcers there, hell's angels there. When the animal, his big hell's angel, came, he was shocked because one of our deacons was the only man to ever beat him up in a fight. It was just a different church. One of our main leaders, California, had partial lobotomized him. He had shot so many people. He had married a white woman from the circus who was tattooed from head to toe. And you think you've got tattoos. Let me tell you, you don't. It was quite a church. And we descended on Rocky Mountain only to understand it was like the land that time forgot. When I went there, there was my wife and I could, could not join a pool club until after we lived there 12 years because there was not one pool club an African-American joined. African-Americans weren't welcome in the country club. It was just bound and calcified in pain. We began to believe God to raise up a multi-ethnic church, and he did. And I remember my dear friend Chris, West Point graduate, engineer, brilliant. When he moved into a neighborhood, the next day, there was a for sale sign in every yard. The pastor before me who happened to be white. He, the, the, a lawyer and his neighbors came and said, you cannot live in this neighborhood. We don't want you. We're going to shun you because you dare to pastor an African-American. African-Americans that came and they came by the scores and scores. They'd be preached against in their churches. And Irene Mae McLaurin joined my church. She was in her 70s then. I loved her. She always thought I was too skinny. I still always, Pastor, what's wrong? She grabbed my belly. She go, I'm worried for you, Pastor. You're too skinny. I loved her. And her husband was a distinguished African-American professor. Distinguished. And she'd grown up in Montgomery. They were near neighbors to the Abernathys when their house had been bombed. She hadn't ridden the bus for months. And I would go to her house every week for my lesson in African-American history. She and her husband would teach me. And my God, Jesus, they'd feed me too. Chicken, greens. It's kind of, I, my, I was getting fed body, soul, and spirit. It was a beautiful moment. And fortunately, she was a tailor because she could let my pants out as well. So, but the thing that stunned me about Irie Mae is she and her husband didn't know bitterness. She'd say, Pastor, she said, we'd drive from Rocket Mountain to Alabama. There was no restaurants we could eat in because we refused to go to the side door or the back door. Raised extraordinary children. And in that context, I begin to learn if God's going to plant you. I watched the richest white men in the city go to church, hold hands, and worship with the African-American women that had raised them. How does God do that? How does God plant you, grow you? In our larger Every Nation family, which Pastor Brett and Jim and all of us are a part of, and Brett's one of, the, one of the great leaders in every nation, leads all of North America and every nation. I'll never forget, we have churches in South Africa, and South Africa is not really known for their, their, their ethnic love. Many predicted their end, but thank God for President Mandela. A few years before he died, he visited one of our churches. 
And our churches there are very multi-ethnic, black African, white African, even Afrikaans, Indian African, colored African. That's not a slight there in that context. It's the word they use. And this church happened to be meeting in a college campus, a couple thousand people, and the president walked by and looked in and saw that polyglot, saw just a rainbow of color. And he sent word to the young pastor, the president is here, could he please speak a moment? Now, what do you say when President Mandela wants to speak a moment? <laughs> yes, sir. So he comes up, and of course, he's a household word there. Really is in the world, and it should be. He stands and looks down, in tears, he just begins to cry. Tears streaming down his face. Here's what he says. He goes, what you have is what I'm dreaming about for this nation. Pray for me. How does God produce a people like that? How does God take a church and mold them and shape them? So what he says here he can display his splendor in them. I was so blessed. I had brother and sister white. Sister white, if you know what a church mother is, I had sister white and sister McLaurin. I ate at their houses every week just to pastor them. And sister white and sister, the, the wives had 16 children. I, I, had, and I, had another, I had another with 20 siblings, one with 19 siblings, 16 children. They made the finest barbecue a man has ever ate, and I love them dearly also. Okay, now, get back to my ministry. I'm, my mind's wandering off toward lunchtime. Okay, now, how does, how does God do that? Four things. He's got to plant you, and for you to be planted, it takes these things. The right soil, the right sunlight, the right saturation, and the right sustenance. This is what it takes for this to happen. And let me tell you how you get that. We're going to go a few minutes late. Fortunately, there's not another service yet, so I'm going to take my liberty. Now watch this. <laughs> the soil you plant in is important. It says in Isaiah 61:11, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. Pick your soil carefully. You can have a healthy seed, but if you're in the wrong soil, in fact, for many of you, this is a wonderful little plant, but it'll die here sooner or later because it's contained in something so small. In fact, I can put it in good soil, but if it's not plucked out of this, it won't grow. Now, there's two soils the Spirit of God wants to plant you in. He wants to plant you in his person. He wants to plant you in his people. It's also called in the scripture, the vine in the vineyard. It says in John 15, 1 through 7, if you'll get close to the vine, if you'll abide in the vine, if you'll let your roots down into Christ, you'll always bear fruit and you won't wither. Now, one of the tricky things about being in a great church like this, where you have tremendous communicators like Pastor Brett speaking to you, is it's easy to abide in the branches of the church and not in the vine. And so you come here and you feed every Sunday off this tremendous pulpit, but you don't feed when you're at home. And so you begin to wither and you blame the church. The problem is church is not enough. You need a vine, but you need a vineyard. You need a place where you're pruned and loved and protected. Another word for that is Christ in the church. In Colossians 2, 6, and 7, it says, So then just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him rooted. In these next 10 minutes or so, and we'll be done with this. I'm going to help you root down deeper into Christ. 
But it's not enough to root in Christ. We find in Psalms 92, 12 through 14, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They'll grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. Now, two trees, palm trees, they bear fruit in the most severe climates in the world. Cedars, impervious to rot that destroys most plants. But if you're planted in the house of the Lord, it says they will flourish in the courts of our God. They'll still bear fruit in old age. They'll stay fresh and green. Now that old age stuff does become a bit more pertinent at 61 than it did at 41 and 31. They tell me 60 is the new 40. It depends on the morning if that's true or not. But this is a fact. If you want to flourish in your old age, find your purpose in the house of God and get rooted. Uses the model of the temple where you had an outer court for everyone, inner court priest, holy, a holy high priest. It says in the court you'll flourish. That means the deeper you root into God's people, the deeper you root into God's house, the more you flourish. Secondly, though, it says you need the son. It says in Malachi 4.2, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its race. That's S-U-N, not S-O-N. So what's it say? Your spirit needs the sun of God's presence as much as your body and this planet need the sun itself. You can have the greatest plant in the world, perfect soil, perfect seed, watched over. But if there's no sun, they're going to die. They're not going to grow in the dark. How many of you come alive during worship here? Raise your hand. Well, you know why? Because when you get in the presence of God in a corporate way, it gives your spiritual body the, the vitamins you need. It affects you. In our New York church, we have just a brilliant young African-American neuroscientist. She's on YouTube already. She's one of America's most brilliant young scientists. She's doing a seven-year postdoc now. Her husband's also a neuroscientist. They talk about things I can't understand when I take them out. He was a Jewish atheist who Jesus appeared to while they were in class and called to salvation. She told me on the phone a few weeks ago, she said, Pastor Jim, been, she, her PhD work was in oxytocin. She said, Pastor Jim, she said, I'm convinced the reason God has us get up early in the morning and seek him is the presence of God will set the chemical balances in your mind like nothing else will. You see, in the son of God's presence, something comes alive in you. Something wakes up in you. Something grows in you, flows in you, comes on you. You know, I, you know, some of the, some of our people really close to our family have um, kind of, they have that that seasonal seasonal affective depression, and so at certain times a year they need to sit under a lamp to get their chemical balance right. I don't know about you, I got to sit under the presence of God every day. The problem with you, some of you are only in sunlight, S U N, spiritually speaking, once a week. It's just not enough. Especially if you're at work, it's dark or it's hard. And as the culture darkens, your requirement for spiritual sunlight changes exponentially. You need more and more of it. You've got to have it. As we come into the son of God's presence, something comes alive. But we don't just need good soil and good sun. We need saturation. Without water, they're going to die. I can have them in the perfect climate, perfect soil, perfect pot. But if you don't get water, you're dead. Now, we know in the Bible there are three ways God saturates his people. Three. 
And water in the Bible is a picture of the life of God. We know from one of the last chapters of the book of Revelation, you have a river flowing out of the throne of God and the Lamb, living water. Three ways are rain, river, reservoir. Rainwater is amazing. Joel 2.23 says you're not going to miss the former and the latter rains. Rain in the Bible is a picture of revival. Many of, you, many of you may know, but maybe you don't, that the 20th century, there were the greatest number of revivals in any other century in history than the first century church. They all centered really around Los Angeles, California. Pentecostal revival, um, charismatic renewal, uh, and what they call the third wave. There are now over 500 million Christians in the world that believe in the gifts of the Spirit like we do here. But at the very center of that was an African-American named William Seymour. How many of you have heard about him? He was a one-eyed African-American preacher who went to school in Houston, but they wouldn't let him come to class because he was African-American. So he would sit in the hall and listen through a cracked door. On the way, he stopped to see Alma White, and she believed if you had the Holy Spirit, you'd get a certain dance step. What he didn't realize, though, is she was a racist and loved the Ku Klux Klan, and she would attack him for the rest of his life, attack his ministry. He ended up in Los Angeles in an old horse barn on Azusa Street, married the piano player. There are 13 of them, and the Holy Ghost fell for three and a half years. Thousands of people came from around the world. The result are half a billion today. William was a humble man. And the glory cloud would fall so great that William would fall on his face and he'd bring a big wooden milk crate to church. He'd put it over his head because he said, I don't want anyone to think it's about me. Just sit there. So the rain's great, but it comes and goes and you never quite know when you're going to get it. And then there's the river, and we see in Ezekiel 47, 1 and 2, that the river of God flows out of the temple of God, out of the church, and you have an extraordinary river flowing out of this pulpit and flowing in Wednesday night and flowing in these classes, and it's wonderful, but it's just not enough. If the only time you get a drink is on Sunday or Wednesday or in a podcast, it's not enough. That's why there's the reservoir. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, 12 and 13, he said, listen, if you'll drink the water I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. She said, well, give me this water that I might drink. He said, listen, if you drink of me, I'm going to put a well on the inside of you. You'll never be thirsty again. When you were born again, your human spirit was refused with the Holy Spirit, allowing the power and the life of God to flow into you. That's why when we put our roots in God, we're like trees planted by living water. Our fruit never fails. See that little red keyboard there? Love the color. It's beautiful. Watch this now. That's probably fairly expensive, so I won't touch it and mess it up. Robert's got his eye on me somewhere. <laughs> but if that wasn't plugged into that power, it would be worthless. When you were born again, you were plugged in to the power of the Trinity. You go, where's the power? Well, you got to turn that on switch, which kicks over the circuit breaker for the power to flow. How do I do that? Every time you pray, every time you worship, every time you speak the word, every time you hear the word, every time you read the word, every time you fellowship, that power and that life of God flows into you. It flows over you. Lastly, then I'll summarize this with purpose. You got to have some sustenance. I thought just to put sustenance and saturation together, but I thought I would separate them for a moment. You got to eat something. We took communion today. 
And, John, and Jesus says in John 6, 55 through 57, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. If you'll eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll remain in me. Now, when we were taking that little wafer and that juice, that was not the real body or blood of Jesus. That doesn't happen. But there was a very real spiritual presence of Jesus here. And as we were confessing our sins and drawing on him and walking with him, we were feeding on him. Now, he explains this feeding concept later in John 6 when he says, your flesh counts for nothing spiritually. But the words I've spoken to you, they're like containers of the spirit and life. What is Jesus saying? When you meditate, when you read slowly, when you write out, when you ponder his word, they contain the very life and spirit of God and they'll feed you. I I, I appreciate the fact that Brett's a great communicator, but if you're only living on one meal a week, you're starving slowly. You will not be able to draw strength because you'll lack the spiritual calories to do so. Are you feeding? Are you eating? Are you partaking? What's God after? What's his end game? It says in Isaiah 61, 4, they'll rebuild the ancient ruins. They'll restore the places long devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I love that. Rebuild, restore, renew. How's God rebuild ruins? Well, with building materials. He doesn't just build the church with our lives. He builds the community with our lives. We are the oaken boards that he builds with. This church has come into a unique moment. You built a building. Now he's going to build you. For six months, I see the hand of God shaping, pulling, planting. Oh, and more and more people are on the way. God's getting ready to shake us up ethnically again. They're on the way. Love it. Planting. God's going to add tons of Asians. Oh, just watch what he does. He's going to add. He's going to deal with some of your most cherished soil. That's my soil. He says, too bad. (laughs) God don't much care about what you cherish. I hate to say it unless he cherishes it too. Hear me now. Planted in the right soil. Soaking up the right amount of sun. Saturated with living water. Sustained by feeding. He'll take you from this to this.